Welcome to Skim This. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it's starting to feel like spring. The days are getting longer, and we got some good news this week. Congress passed a new COVID relief bill, and the CDC started loosening restrictions for people who've gotten their shots. We'll break down both stories and talk to a Skim HQer about her vaccine experience. But as the U.S. marks one year since the coronavirus was declared a global pandemic, it's also clear that we barely emerged from a brutal winter. And with one in three Americans knowing someone who's died, the healing process is just beginning. So this week, we talked to a grief counselor about what we're feeling and what the road ahead might look like. Plus, we caught up with former President Barack Obama. Yeah, that Barack Obama, about how America has tried to reckon with race over the past year. So stick around. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. Hey, skimmers. We're here to tell you about another podcast you'll like, Double Date. Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue fell in love on live television and wed over 40 years ago. On Double Date, eavesdrop as they visit the homes of their favorite long-married celebrity couples for intimate conversations about enduring love and all its challenges. Family, career, conflict, addiction, illness, jealousy, everything under the sun. Hear those personal and often hilarious stories that all married couples like to tell. From Viola Davis and Julius Tenen to Sting and Trudy Styler to Neil Patrick Harris and David Burtka, and so many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get back to the show. Before we talk about vaccines or your physical and mental health, let's talk about something that could affect your wallet. This week, after months of negotiation, Congress finally passed another stimulus bill. And this afternoon, President Biden signed it. For a lot of Americans, this bill contains things they've been asking for, like another round of stimulus checks, healthcare subsidies, and child tax credits. You're gonna grant me any three wishes I want, right? Uh, almost. There are a few uh, provisos, a, a couple of quid pro quos. But with this stimulus bill, the vibe is a little less, your wish is my command, and a little more. You're getting your wishes, so sit down! All right, cool it, Jeannie. The first wish, more stimulus checks, which Congress has agreed to, but with a couple conditions. You may have heard a lot of dollar amounts tossed around for this, but the price that was right for Congress this time was $1,400 per person. Though there's a catch. If you make between $75,000 and $80,000 a year individually, or between $150,000 and $160,000 as a married couple, you'll see a smaller check. Make more than that, and sorry, no check for you. So that's wish number one. Wish number two, the biggest makeover for the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, since it was passed way back in 2010. It's not quite like Aladdin's glow up, but it's still a pretty big transformation. At the moment, there's an income cap on who's allowed to get subsidies to help them pay for health insurance. But now, that income cap is gone, meaning lower-income Americans will likely get more financial help, and people making more than the old cap could receive subsidies for the first time. Plus, the bill limits the amount that any household will pay on their health insurance premiums to 8.5% of their income. The catch? 
These new rules expire in two years. And to be eligible, you've got to get your health insurance through the Obamacare marketplace. And for other benefits, live in a state that expanded Medicaid since 2010. So like most things related to healthcare, read the fine print on this one. The third and final wish Congress granted this week, a bigger child tax credit. Currently, parents can claim a child tax credit of up to $2,000 per kid per year. But for the next year, a lot of parents will be able to get as much as $3,000 per kid, and even more for kids under six years old. According to the think tank, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, this single policy could lift more than 4 million kids out of poverty and improve the lives of millions more. Again, this policy isn't permanent. It's just for 2021 but it's a policy Dems want to continue even after the pandemic is over. So what's the skim? The latest relief bill is gonna mean a lot of people get another stimulus check, even if it's for less than what people initially hoped. Plus, there's help paying for healthcare and for kids, which will give some temporary relief right now, regardless of whether these programs continue long-term. Finally, Congress put a lot more than three things in this latest bill. For a more complete look at what's in the bill and some ideas about the best ways to spend your stimulus check, head on over to theskim.com money or check out the link in our show notes. This week, the CDC came out with new guidance for people who've been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. And some of these guidelines are honestly pretty awesome. After months of planning FaceTime catch-ups, the CDC now says that people who've received the vaccine can visit groups of other vaccinated people without masks or social distancing. And they can gather indoors. Remember sitting on someone's couch? Fully vaccinated people can also visit unvaccinated people with no masks or distancing, provided that those unvaccinated people are at low risk for severe disease. And finally, vaccinated people can also skip quarantining if they've been exposed to COVID-19, even though they should still monitor themselves closely for symptoms. If those new guidelines sound like a whole new world, they kind of are. But there's a reason why planning a big party, going to a crowded bar, or traveling around the world aren't on that list. The reason? The CDC is still waiting for enough people in the U.S. to get vaccinated so the spread of the virus can meaningfully slow and we can inch closer and closer back to normal life. Because, quick reminder, more people vaccinated equals more people protected against COVID. So for the time being, people who've received their shot still have to take precautions, like wearing a mask in public, avoiding crowds, and getting tested for COVID if they feel sick. Still, it's not hard to picture what life will feel like when we can loosen up some of our behavior. And now that the vaccine rollout is ramping up here in the U.S., a lot of people are itching for when it will be their turn in line. To get some perspective on what getting the vaccine is actually like, we called up one of our colleagues. I'm Kat, and I'm on the finance and strategy team here at The Skim. I have suffered from asthma for many years, and it's moderate to severe. Two years ago, I was actually in the emergency room when I had a really severe asthma attack. And when... COVID began, I was definitely very nervous for what was to come, knowing my past experience struggling with asthma and using multiple inhalers on a daily basis and occasionally having to go to the doctors for additional oxygen. 
Because of her asthma, Kat's been especially worried for the past year. I remember just being really anxious to see what was going to happen and how I was going to be able to navigate my day-to-day life. One of the first known cases in New York City was actually at my old office building. And I remember being out with a friend at an art exhibit and just getting this overwhelming source of panic. What if I had interacted with this person? What did it mean? I started double masking, wiping down groceries, have carried extra sanitizer with me. I'm just very careful about what I come into contact with. I didn't see my family for a full year, which was definitely tough. I haven't seen my extended family in over a year just because I'm too nervous to get on public transportation. So finally, after a year of missing her family, going through endless Clorox wipes and staying isolated, Kat found out she was finally eligible for the vaccine because of her medical condition. If you had told me three months ago or a month ago that I would be getting vaccinated, I would not have believed you. Lucky for us, Kat invited us to follow along on her vaccine journey. Virtually, of course. Hey, it's Kat. I just woke up on Sunday, February 28th, and it's vaccine day. I'm super excited. Kind of feels like my birthday. (laughs) I'm going to get in a short workout and some breakfast before heading over to the Javits Center where I'm getting vaccinated. I did some research and want to get there early. It's a rainy Sunday here in New York City. Hopefully I won't have to wait outside too long in the rain, but I'm just psyched to head on over and start the vaccination process. So it feels like a very big, exciting day. That process involved bringing a decent amount of paperwork, though these requirements do change depending on which state you're in. So be sure to check your appointment confirmation email for what you'll need to bring. I received a confirmation email yesterday from the Department of Health that listed what I needed to bring with me. So I have my registration ticket, my license, my proof of eligibility, which is a letter from my doctor listing my history with asthma and the medications and inhalers I take regularly for it, my insurance card, and proof that I completed the New York State vaccine form. I also brought my inhalers just in case I need additional proof of eligibility, a water bottle, an extra mask, and some gloves. I just arrived at the Javits Center and I'm about 15 minutes early. The entire place looks like an airport. There was a short line I had to wait in to have my appointment confirmation checked and now I'm in a much longer line that looks exactly like airport security. I'd say there are about 200 to 250 people ahead of me, but the line is moving really quickly. They're playing music that sounds similar to what you'd hear in a doctor's waiting room. It looks like there's a range of ages and for the most part, people seem to be quite calm. They're keeping to themselves, but there's definitely a buzz of positive energy in the air. It looks like after I wait in this line, I'll move into a room where I'll have all my forms checked and then I'll wait in one last line before getting vaccinated. So I just got my vaccine and I am walking over to the waiting area. It's a massive area right next to the vaccination station where they set up around, it looks like 
500 black folding chairs for everyone who is just vaccinated to wait for 15 to 30 minutes and monitor side effects. My nurse could not have been kinder. She walked me through any questions I had, what the next steps would be, and told me that I would come back in three weeks for my next dose. I am just so happy. I feel elated. It's been a little over a week since Kat got her first dose of the vaccine. So we gave her a call to check in and see how things were going. The day of, I was tired, but I think it was from all the commotion and the excitement. And my arm was sore that evening and the next day, but that wore off, I would say, within 24, 36 hours. So your, your next appointment is next week? Yes, it's next Sunday. We also wanted to check in on how you're feeling now that you have it, like emotionally, now that it's been a week, you know, do you feel different when you're walking around? I feel like it's kind of like in Black Panther when they lower their lift and they can tell that they have the mark because they all know that they're from Wakanda. It's like, I feel like there should be some kind of signal. Um, So everyone knows who is vaccinated walking around New York City, but I have been following all the protocol that the CDC said. So leaving my mask on, the majority of my friends haven't been vaccinated yet. So I've just been continuing to keep a distance, go on walks with friends. But once I get my second dose and the weather warms up, I think that I will feel a lot more comfortable uh, navigating different kinds of scenarios. Obviously, because I follow you on Instagram, (laughs) I know that you had posted on your story that you got it. And I'm curious, did you get a lot of people asking you why you got it? I just posted a screenshot of my appointment. So no confidential information, but received a lot of responses from friends that I am a yoga teacher outside of work. So that I met through yoga teacher training and know I'm a healthy, capable mid 20 year old. And how, what can I get one? Where'd you get it? How'd you qualify? And at first I felt a little guilty because I didn't want to be broadcasting that I had access to something that not everyone does. And I would have never shared it if I had been in any way gaming the system, but I'm completely comfortable to share with everyone. I have asthma and I have no shame in that whatsoever. And the more information people have, that is just important to share. So yeah, I have no problem, but it was funny at first. Um, A friend of mine was like, being a Gemini is not an underlying condition. So (laughs) there's that. (laughs) How does your family feel? Is everyone kind of looking forward to seeing each other again? They're elated. I'm in a big family group chat and my family's very close, my extended family. My family is hoping to do outdoor Easter this year because my grandparents have been vaccinated. My mom and my stepdad have been, and we haven't done a big extended family event in a year and a half. So I'm just really looking forward to being able to do that and feel much more comfortable getting on the train, going to the train station, being in cars. For the most part, I think they're really happy that we're going to be able to see each other and that my grandma doesn't have to be inside the house 24-7. So it's been awesome to just have their support and know that just the more people that get vaccinated, the better. Kat is now one of over 60 million people in the U.S. who's received a COVID-19 vaccine. But the vaccine sign-up process hasn't been easy for everyone. People across the country have been hitting refresh, hoping to get an appointment for themselves or a loved one who's eligible. To find out how to make a vaccine appointment and check on your own eligibility, go to your state's health department website. And as the vaccine rollout continues across the country, the skim will keep you updated on what you need to know.
This week, the skim sat down with former President Barack Obama. We asked him to skim his new book, A Promised Land, and he did a pretty good job, despite admitting, uh, Brevity is not my strength. Then we surprised him with some questions on the news. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the killing of Breonna Taylor by police in Louisville, Kentucky. It's also the week that jury selection began in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer on trial for second-degree manslaughter and second-degree unintentional murder in connection with the death of George Floyd. We'll be covering the Chauvin trial more in the weeks to come, but for now, we wanted to share President Obama's answer when we asked him what he makes of the last year and what it will take for the U.S. to actually make progress on race relations. The United States has never fully done a reckoning of our past. And I am somebody who is an eternal optimist and insists uh, on us recognizing the extraordinary progress in race relations that's been made just in my lifetime. But the truth of the matter is that the scars of slavery and Jim Crow never fully went away. They're embedded in our institutions, they're embedded in our economy, and they're embedded in our attitudes. And it, I think, as is true for individuals, it's very hard for us to solve our, our deepest problems until we recognize them and understand them. The same is true for a nation. And so for young people to have started, I think, educating themselves more the way we've seen since the demonstrations this summer and the George Floyd murder, for people to, to become more aware of how profoundly race has shaped our society and continues to shape uh, our society, that's that's an important place to start. But at the, at the end of the day, the thing I'm, I'm encouraged by is, is I see young people, the peers of my daughters, who I think have genuinely grown up and internalized the notion that all people are equal and deserving of dignity and respect. And that impulse is there in the majority of this upcoming generation. The next stage is to recognize that in order to make that a reality, we have to deal with institutions. We have to deal with budgets. It means that we've got to tackle schools that are underfunded. And it means that we've got to change hiring practices. And that legacy is one that doesn't just go away because we all are going to treat each other nicely and not use racial epithets. Yeah, we've got to actually roll up our sleeves and do the work and make sacrifices. But I think we can do that. Why not? It's the right thing to do. Look out for The Skim's complete interview with former President Obama on our social media channels and on our website, theskim.com, later tonight. It's that time of year again. Daylight Savings is coming up this weekend, and not the fun one where we get an extra hour of sleep. This Sunday? When the clock strikes 2 a.m., then it will immediately turn to 3 a.m., and you'll skip that whole hour. That's Carly M. She's a health writer for SkimWell, and she says losing that one hour of sleep can actually have pretty big consequences. There is a spike in things like fatal car crashes, strokes, and heart attacks. And often this happens the Monday right after the Sunday of daylight savings time. Here's why. 
generally, we need somewhere between seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Just one hour less than that, and... You could really be disrupting what researchers call your circadian rhythm. The way to maintain a healthy circadian rhythm throughout the year involves having regular sleep habits. When you wake up, get some sunlight. Tell your body it's light time. And when it's about a half hour before bed, turn off your screen. <laughs> but this weekend, to soften the impact of a lost hour of sleep, we can try gradually shifting our body clocks to accommodate daylight savings. Start rolling your bedtime maybe 15 minutes earlier and wake up 15 minutes earlier so it's not an abrupt change. Which could be extra handy advice if a newborn kid or a pandemic puppy is gonna be crying for attention anyway, regardless of whether you've had a good night's sleep. I have a dog every weekend when I don't set an alarm, he still gets up at 6.15. So I was thinking about doing this myself. <laughs> One year ago this week, a lot of things in our lives ground to a halt. That's because the WHO officially declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. And then other things made it feel even more real, like when Tom Hanks said he tested positive or the NBA suspended its season. And for a lot of us, our workplaces said, hey, we're going to do this remotely for a while. And while we've mostly figured out how to protect ourselves from COVID as we wait for our turn to get vaccinated, it's felt more like we've been struggling than actually surviving. Almost all of us have dealt with some sense of loss over the last 12 months, whether through the loss of a loved one or a friend, or the loss of a job, a relationship, or even your social life. So this week, we wanted to spend some time acknowledging what we've lost, including the people who are no longer with us. Almost 530,000 people in the U.S. and more than 2 million people globally. And because we don't have any alternative to just moving forward, we wanted to talk about how we can do exactly that after a traumatic, seemingly never-ending year. So we called someone to talk to. I'm Dr. Sonia Lott. I'm a licensed psychologist, and I'm in private practice specializing in traumatic grief and prolonged grief disorder. I want to start this interview by just grounding us for a second in where we are. It's been a year for most people since COVID-19 came into their lives. And some people have really felt the effects of this pandemic in, in different ways. And some people have felt it harder than others. And I would love for you to explain to us what grief has looked like for people this year. It's been multi-layered for most of us. When we think about grief, we tend to think about death-related loss. And so we know that over half a million people in this country have died. We've got the highest rate of death anywhere else in the world. So a lot of people are dealing with death-related loss, often more than one person in the family, or at least a family member and friends, co-workers, which is uh, a lot like our second family. We don't always like them, but we love them. We work with them and spend time with them, you know. So many people are dealing with multiple losses. We're also dealing with a lot of non-death related losses. The loss of the assumptive world, which happens with death also, but the loss of the idea that I'm in control of my living. There's a loss of, for many people, financial security. 
the loss of routine, the loss of physical touch, because we're not supposed to be hugging right now. And it's in the absence of being able to do that, that we're beginning to really appreciate how important that is. Do people recognize when they're experiencing or grieving those secondary losses, those non-death losses? Is that something that people have the ability to recognize that they're going through trauma because they don't have those things in their life? Not always. And one reason for that is that we're a pretty grief illiterate society. We don't do well with understanding and acknowledging and being present for death-related losses, let alone for other losses. Many people don't recognize the loss of a relationship if it's not a breakup or a divorce as a loss. Some of the other things, financial security, a job, and so on, we don't always recognize that it's something that deserves our attention, that deserves a grief process, you know? So I've spent a lot of time in this past year trying to speak about that, to speak to the importance of honoring right where you are. And many people are feeling, well, you know, why should I be in grief or upset about this? You know, I I haven't lost a loved one. My grief then isn't worthy of honoring. And it absolutely is. When we're able to name these things, then we get to, you know, move through them in a more direct and helpful way. This is a unique time where people can't do the things that they normally do. Have you observed that people over the past year are not processing their grief because of these types of circumstances? And from your observations from the past year, what are the most common ways that you see people experiencing or processing their grief as individuals right now? Connecting with people as best they can. Um, by phone, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever video app, we found some really creative ways to connect that we didn't typically think about or engage in prior. You know, more families across the world are connecting now via the internet. It's not uncommon to hear families talk about having every Sunday gathering by Zoom or Saturday, you know. So people are connecting in those ways. And Our connection to other people is what keeps us together or or gets us back together when we're out of alignment, you know. Some people are gathering outdoors, acknowledging the need that people feel to be together. And oftentimes they're overriding the realities and the immediacy of transmission of COVID. Yeah, I guess what comes to mind for me is there are like culturally obvious things that we do in the grief process. You know, there's a wake or a shiva or a gathering. Sometimes there's a more formal funeral and people wear black. And it's like these visual cues or smells even of people bringing food and wearing clothes in solidarity. Why do those things aid the grieving process in non-pandemic times? Those types of rituals, one, help us to, we're acknowledging loss. We're naming it. We're honoring the person. What the clothing, for example, if we're wearing all black, it speaks to, you know, that we're in mourning together. It's a solidarity, if you will. The act of bringing food is an act of nurturance. It's saying, I care for you. I want you to be well. I love you. It, almost in every culture, feeding people is a way of showing our love and our care for them. And so those are all the ways that we show that we care and that we, when we don't have words, to care for our loved ones when they're in their deepest need, you know? 
in pre-pandemic times, you could expect the same people to bring the same things. You might end up with an abundance of ham. Some people might bring a little spam casserole. Everybody brings fried chicken or potato salad. We gather together. And, you know, even though few people really have an appetite, again, it's the act of bringing, of caring for loved ones when they are grieving. As a society, what are you and people in your line of work predicting as the result of that kind of delayed trauma for a society? What does the next year look like for people in terms of processing those emotions? Well, you know, we're all doing the best that we can. And if we don't have the resources or we don't feel internally that we have them to process our grief, we will try not to process it, you know. But the consequence typically of the delayed grief is that grief becomes prolonged. It will come up again. It may be that it gets triggered with the next loss of a loved one dying or the end of a relationship, which is very common, or the loss of a job. New loss will trigger old loss, even if you've not delayed it, but particularly if you have. And it's the same thing with trauma. If we don't have the resources to process, our bodies will hold it. And it's still stored in our minds below our immediate awareness. It, it, it doesn't go away. It just gets stored until another trauma or another loss happens. I remember when there were 100,000 COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. and the New York Times printed all those names on the front page of the newspaper. And now we have over half a million deaths in this country, over 2 million globally. From your perspective, are we kind of numb as a society to the loss because it almost feels incalculable? That's true. It's overwhelming to try to take in the magnitude of the losses that we've experienced. And when we've had almost a year where it wasn't acknowledged, it was actually denied by top government officials. So we have been numb and we haven't had permission on a national level to really grieve all of these losses, you know, the deaths and everything else that's happened. And I remember the night before President Biden and now Vice President Harris were inaugurated, they had the memorial service to honor. I don't think we were at 500,000 just yet, very close to it. And the impact of that was profound for people just to have, to bear witness, to be seen, if you will, in that way for what we're all experiencing. It's interesting that I'm talking to you this week. We've had a loss in my family last weekend, and we have been talking about our plans and what we're going to be doing. And there are just things that are disrupted in how we would normally grieve a person. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through the psychological benefits of how we normally grieve in non-pandemic times and why those help. And then I, I would love to be able to give people listening and myself some tools to process their grief right now, because I think a lot of people are tired of Zoom and they're tired of trying to fake social connection or grasp for it when it, it really doesn't feel like it exists. Okay. So my first, I actually have my hand over my heart. I feel, I can't know exactly, but I feel a bit of where you are and I'm just sending you love. 
you know, I've talked about we typically gather together and it's so important to witness grief. And we typically get together and, and we tell the same stories about the person who's died over and over again and we laugh and cry together and hug and all of that. So if you have anybody in your household who you're living with, same plot kind of thing, hug as much as you can. If you have a dog or a cat, hug, <laughs> cuddle, because we release oxytocin, that quote, feel good hormone, both we as humans and the our animals do as well. And that may sound hokey to some people, but it's really true. Be in contact as much as you can. Connection when you're sharing loss can be profound, even though we're on Zoom. So I encourage you to do that. I don't know what family rituals or religious rites you may have around honoring loved ones who have died, but do whatever you can at a safe distance, of course, but know that delaying service or delaying gathering in person can still be really, really healing to be together when you can. But that really, I keep coming back to that. That's one of the most profound losses we're experiencing is being able to be together in these moments. And so we're doing the best we can with what we have. And to know that your grief begins when the person dies or as you've been given the awareness that they're going to die. But grief is lifelong. That part of grief in which we will always miss, we will always wish that the person were still here. We will always have memories that will trigger sadness. But the frequency of it and the intensity of it is what changes over time. For other young people and, you know, particularly female millennials who are experiencing their own version of loss, and you talked about the assumptive world and the idea that people feel like they've ceded control over the past year to this virus, even though we probably never had control in the first place. I'm wondering what you would recommend to other people out there who are feeling that disruption of their normal life and how they can kind of create some normalcy, or should they lean into that idea that they've suffered this loss? You know, maybe it's their dating life or maybe something that they really cared about at work has gone away. One of the things is that as humans, we have great resilience, especially if we have appropriate support. And so the idea of looking at what we can't control and then shifting our way of thinking about it or feeling about it, and then focusing equal attention on the things that we can control. We may find that there are many things that we didn't think we had control over that we do, and shift those things in the ways that serve our highest good. The other thing is that we can't predict the future. We don't know what's in the future. You know, we're one phone call away from some wonderful new beginning. And one of the ways that we deal with loss, if it's death related or otherwise, is to find new meaning past that new purpose. And so we don't know, we can't always see what's being manifested until it shows up. So if we can have just a little bit of hope that there's something happening for my highest good that I may not be able to see right now, that is really helpful too, because we don't know what's in our future. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. 
Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 